Hey, one more thing before you go. How do you overcome parent abandonment, eating disorders, alcoholism, domestic and sexual violence? Well, we have a conversation with a woman that experienced all of that and through determination, faith and resilience, she was able to create an environment and the tools dedicated to helping those individuals that are victims of sex trafficking and domestic violence. We're going to give you those tools to escape those circumstances yourself or to help someone you know. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. My guest in this episode is Stephanie Olson. She's a speaker and author and the chief executive officer of the Set Me Free Project. It's a prevention education organization on human trafficking, social media safety, and healthy relationships. She's on a mission to share that each person has an intrinsic value that cannot be changed. I'm excited about sharing this knowledge, this wisdom, and everything that goes along with it. Living with years of parent abandonment eating uh, disorders, alcoholism, domestic and sexual violence. She overcame through determination, faith, resilience, and she turned her trauma into triumph. And we're going to share her story. As the co-founder of the Set Me Free Project, Stephanie has been able to grow a nonprofit from nothing to bringing prevention to thousands of you by teaching them that they have an intrinsic value that no one can change. She's the host of Being Resilient podcast, and welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Michael. It's great to be here. I'm uh, I'm very happy to have you on the show. I'm really looking forward to sharing your, like I said earlier, sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, your experience, and helping others that we can uh, hopefully inspire, yeah. motivate, educate them to know that they uh, are important and uh, they Absolutely. need to take a look at themselves and understand that um, they have to love themselves and... Yeah. Uh, you know, take the courage uh, uh, to move forward. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. So important. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. Um, as we said right before we started uh, recording this wonderful uh, conversation today, uh, I like to begin at the beginning. Uh, where'd you grow up? Well, I uh, was born in Bloomington, Illinois. Grew up early on in uh, Western Springs, LaGrange, those suburbs of Chicago, and um, eventually moved to Littleton, Colorado, and Lincoln, Nebraska, which I kind of call home. We've since moved to Omaha, my husband and I, but um, Nebraska's been my home for a long time. Now, to go from Colorado to Nebraska, and I'm a Colorado boy. That's my, mm -hmm. home, that's my home state. I grew up there. Um, so when I say this, uh, with all due respect, yes. because I don't know why I did it. Well, I know why I did. I came down here to get a surgeon, <laughs> but, but, uh, I moved from there to, to, uh, Phoenix area, which is like desert. Yeah. And my yeah. wife and I are still asking ourselves, why did we leave the mountains and the trees <laughs> and the green? Just, just the fact that it's green, um, yeah. down here. But, you know, thank you for being a, uh, a Colorado resident for a little bit. That gives us a little more uh, connection. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. I didn't have much choice. My my parents moved me. So I I moved um, along with them, but I am now grateful that I am here. It's oh, very green in Nebraska too. So I got that going for me. <laughs> well, speaking of parents, what were your parents like? Well, 
interestingly enough, I, um, I was born to a very abusive biological father. My mom um, has always been incredibly wonderful, but she was very young and very insecure when she met and then married my biological father. And so that really started out the trajectory of my life, having that abuse um, in my childhood. And it was the first year my mom actually escaped from that relationship, which is phenomenal. But as a little girl who, you know, wants to be daddy's little girl, I never had my biological father do anything to find me, to send me a birthday card, no holiday cards. He was gone. And so as a little girl who is always looking for, you know, gosh, I am I I'm not even worthy of my own father to find to love me, to to be around me, I must not be worthy. My own biological father love me, I must not be very lovable. And so that's really how how my life began. You know, that's I that's unfortunate, but um sometimes there are blessings in disguise. Uh, mm-hmm. And it brought you here to this point where you are sharing your story enough to help yep. others that are going through the same thing uh, for them to move forward because they may not Absolutely. have that opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. We wound up moving into my grandparents' home, which was a great thing because my grandparents were incredibly loving and supportive. Uh, but my mom was young. She wasn't around early on. And, um, and then she married my my dad, who I refer to as my dad. I always make a distinction between my biological father and my dad because any male can be a father, but it really does take a special man to be a dad. It does, and 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 yeah. step. I have to say this: stepfathers don't. You don't have to be. You don't have to be blood to be family. No, you don't. You absolutely do not. And he adopted me when I was six. Um, but he had an instant family, you know, here right. he was with a wife and a child at 31 years old. And so, you know, again, that desire to be daddy's little girl, he wasn't, he didn't know how to do that. Right. Um, human, he was great, great man, great dad, but I wanted something he just didn't have the ability to give. The stepfather or the father? Mm-hmm. My step- dad, my my dad, my dad. stepfather who adopt him. So he'd be my adopted father. Adoptive father. Adoptive father. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I'm, I'm, forgive me. I, I'm, I'm just trying to keep yeah. up. Almost, almost it's got hard. there. <laughs> it's confusing. I'll tell you. No, uh, he, he, yeah, he was a amazing man and, and he really did. Um, he was my dad, you know, he, he, was, he raised me, um, and loved me, but those first few years of trauma in any child's life are really, that's a critical development time for children mm-hmm. and can really set them on a path of destruction. Well, I think that, and, and, I, and I understand this f- from the perspective of going through something similar to you. Yeah. You know, when you, when you have that, uh, dare I say, abandonment issue, you, mm-hmm. you have that fact that that person has left and gone that creates an environment for mental health, yep. physical ailments, mm-hmm. all down the line, correct? 
absolutely. And, and they say that statistically one of the worst, um, and again, we don't, we don't label trauma, trauma is trauma is trauma, but I think sometimes people, uh, make light of the abandonment of a parent because unfortunately it happens so frequently, but that is one of the most traumatic things that can happen to a child, um, of just about everything that might be able to happen. So the abandonment of a parent is really critical. Yeah, have you, if I can ask those, have you ever heard from your biological father? No. In fact, for years, I wanted to find him and say, hey, did it without you. Thanks a lot. Had some other choice words in mind. But um, years later, I realized because I had all of this anger and resentment towards him. And one day I was driving home and I realized, oh my gosh, you have spent all of this energy hating this man when you have these amazing, by this point, I was married to my husband and, and had raised by a wonderful man, my dad, you have these incredible men in your life that have shown you love, have shown you support, have embraced you completely. And yet you have spent all these years focusing on the one who didn't. And I really was able to forgive my biological father let go of that hurt and pain and um, really move forward from that. Now, I was a, it was much later in my life through a lot of healing and trauma. But years later, um, after that, I f was doing the ancestry thing and found his death certificate. So he, um, he died several years ago. Uh, that's, that's, uh, it's interesting that, that, that path. Do you think that caused? Um, I, I say I know that you've got a, 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 your dad raised you, and you, you got yeah. love from this individual and some nurturing. Mm -hmm. uh, but prior to that, uh, did that cause any kind of uh, di uh, disorders, eating disorders, and mental health issues, or things like that? I all know the that things. All those things. <laughs> all those things. Well, all I, I, the things. Yep. I know that you uh, you talk about alcoholism and domestic and mm -hmm. sexual violence. Um, I'm assuming during your pastime, can we talk about those, how those came about and what you yeah. did to kind of recognize where you were? Absolutely. You know, I, I think that I kind of became the cliche looking for love in all the wrong places and um, really didn't feel a sense of control in my life. And so in middle school, so seventh and eighth grade, I developed um, a couple of eating disorders, anorexia and bulimia, and would go between starving myself and getting really small and then binging and, um, and purging. And so really just trying and eating disorders are all about just gaining some sort of control, mm -hmm. a semblance of control. If I can control nothing else in my life, I can control this. And um, went through a lot of years struggling with that. And it was in high school that I found alcohol. And I, I think that there are two different types of alcoholics. This is just my, my personal opinion. But I think there are the, the kind of alcoholics that are predisposed to alcoholism. So they are born with that predisposition towards alcoholism. And that first drink kind of sets them on a path. And then there are the kinds that 
are habitual alcoholics. They become alcoholics from habitual use. I was definitely that predisposed young one because every day at four o'clock sharp, my grandparents would have a Manhattan every single day. And I wanted that maraschino cherry soaking in the Manhattan. I could have gone and got the one out of the fridge. That's not the one I wanted. I wanted the one soaking in the Manhattan. And when I was 16 and really had my first drunk, that night I blacked out. So my very first drunk, I blacked out. And I always looked at drinking a little bit differently than my friends. I always wanted the next, I was always looking forward to the next drink. When are we going to get that next drunk? And it was just always very different. So I, I really see a lot of, um, you know, generational things there. And as I told you, I found my biological father's death certificate. He actually died of alcoholism. Yeah, that, that's interesting. My, my, both my parents were alcoholics. So I empathize mm. with you in, in regard to yeah. that. My father died when uh, I was 17 years old. He uh, died of esophageal cancer and um, cer oh. excuse me, cirrhosis of the liver. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, bad alcoholic from that perspective. And, you know, I, when we grow up in those environments, um, mm -hmm. we, we start taking lessons at an early age. You say sure. when your dad gets angry, he goes and drinks. When he gets sad, he goes and drinks. Yeah. You know, if he's happy, hey, let's have a drink. You kind of get to relate those. And this is just from, you know, my personal experience. You know, you kind of get to right. You understand to start relating that each time you have an emotion, you go to drink. You get depressed, you yeah. go get a drink. You get angry, you go get a drink. You get happy, go get a drink. You're celebrating that you're not angry and yeah. not depressed. And it's kind right. of a never-ending cycle. And right. I know that we as children sometimes get stuck in that cycle um, yeah. and, and, and only understand it from that perspective. I was lucky. Um, I kind of looked at it. I was a middle child. So to me, I ended up having to call in for my parents when they couldn't go to work. You know, I had to uh -huh. take them the aspirin and the water and, the, you know, everything to kind of take care of them instead yeah. of them take care of me. That's sad. A, little, a younger brother, an older sister. My older sister moved out. So it, it was kind of left to me from that perspective. Yeah. So, you know, it creates an environment that you either go one way yeah. sometimes or you go the other way. Uh, mm -hmm. My brother went the other way, the opposite direction from me. Yeah. Yeah. Situation. So um, at what point did you recognize that, that there was an issue that you had a problem that you, that you probably needed to work with? It was a long time. <laughs> so I had, um, I, I married my, my first husband um, through a lot of drunken dating that was early on in my life. I was young, um, had gone through a lot of, that's when I had gone through a lot of the sexual um, violence that I experienced through high school and through college. Um, and then um, married my abusive husband um, at the time. And he was a drug dealer. That's always a bad, bad sign when you're dating a drug dealer. But I think that uh, through that time, my drinking really never let up. 
my eating disorders were still going full force. And so there was a lot of, a lot of trauma, a lot of abuse in that relationship. I left him two years later. Um, and by the grace of God met and married my husband today. And I don't even know how that happened because healthy attracts healthy. And I was definitely not healthy at that point, but I was drinking every day. And, um, it wasn't until my daughter, um, was about 18 months old that I really started to recognize I need to do something different. And one day I, I put her to bed. This wasn't even the catalyst, but I put her to bed and I woke up the next morning and there was red wine all over her changing table, all over her crib. And even that wasn't enough for me to say, I'm done with this. So um, it was truly by the grace of God that I decided that I needed help. And I really thought at first, you know, I just need to cut back. I want somebody to help me cut back and called a self-help group that they don't do that, don't help you cut back. And it was just a journey, a journey of becoming sober and recognizing that, yeah, this was an issue because I was a very functioning alcoholic. Yeah. There's a growing up with it. Number one, and in my previous career, as everybody knows, um, uh, you observe functioning alcoholics and you observe yeah. individuals that have drank for the first time, as well as individuals that over drank for the yes. first time, a lot of times, um, at yeah, at at I know that you so going through this journey. Um, when you recognize, how did you finally uh, get some help? I know you reached out to some help, uh, self help groups. They didn't. Yep. They didn't help you. Did you have to go into Alcoholics Anonymous? Did you go to a rehab well, program? Well, yeah. How, how'd you get some help? It, it it was AA that I called, and they actually did help me, but it it was a, a process. I. I had decided because I, I had in my mind, I wasn't an alcoholic, right. you know, I, I didn't drink on out of a bag. I wasn't drinking under a bridge. I mean, there were the, all these mindsets that I had of what an alcoholic looked like. Society and I did does. what I was. A, yeah, exactly. I was a stay at home mom. I was not, you know, doing these crazy things that would be in our mindsets. And so it took me a long time to recognize that I might have a problem. And the word alcoholic didn't even come into my mind at first. And so I would do little things to try and cut back like, okay, well, I'm only going to drink at home. And then, you know, then there would be, I was home all the time. I'm only going to drink it out out, go, going out for dinner. And then I'd make sure we were out every night of the week. You know, I'm only going to drink special occasions. And then there'd be a good Oprah on on the Tuesday. And that was special enough. You know, it was all of these excuses. And when I called, finally, and there was no big thing that happened. Somebody asked me the other day, what was the big thing that happened in your life that made right. you stop drinking? And there wasn't. There, there wasn't just these tuggings of, I know this isn't my best. Um, and I called um, AA and said, can you help me cut back? 
And they said, no, <laughs> we don't do that. So I went to a meeting and it was a meeting in a really rough part of town, but it was at lunchtime. And I thought, oh, you know, we're going to have, it's going to be business people and it was, it's going to be good. And I went and sat down and looked around and I thought, oh my gosh, where am I? And I started to listen to people talk. And there was a guy who said, you know, I, I was on heroin. I stole all my roommate's furniture and sold it. And then I realized, and I thought, oh my gosh, okay, that's not my story. But what I heard were the similarities. I never heard the differences. And I went home to my husband and I said, eh, you know, that was good, but I don't think that this is for me. And he said, well, why don't you try a meeting close to home? See what, see what you think. So I went on a Wednesday night, which is traditionally church night. And it was at a church and I was just mortified. I thought, oh, it's choir night. People are going to be doing the church thing. I walked in and I saw three women that were just beautifully dressed. And um, again, it's that off perception, that stereotype. And they walked in and one of them I knew, and I was just dying inside. And one of the women looked at the sign that was up and it said AA, and it gave the room number and she pointed at it and said, okay, we're going to this room. And I was shocked because I thought there's no way they're going to an AA meeting. And I looked at both of them and I said, or all three of them, and just stunned. And one of them said, is this your first meeting? And I said, it's my second. And those women took me under their wing. One of them became my sponsor. And I found out they had never been to that meeting before, never went since. I mean, that was just God dropping them right where I needed them at that moment. Right place, right time. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's, how I, that's how I quit. That's a that's an outstanding opportunity for you to change your life. Mm -hmm. I think a good turning mm -hmm. point, especially the yeah. the scene was set perfectly, so where you knew you had some support and support from an unlikely source that you never probably expected yeah. to have. Um, yeah, you know, we don't always know. Yeah, that's one advantage. I call it an advantage, um, but sometimes it was a a curse, <laughs> I guess, a little bit. Is that you know, we don't always know what goes on behind closed doors. In my yeah. previous profession, I, I was privy to what goes on behind yeah. closed doors. We saw people at their worst. We saw the best people at their worst. It didn't matter if you were poor, yeah. you were middle class, or you were rich. You all went through the matter. same problems, the same issues, the same fights, the same right. alcoholism, the same drug addiction, the same everything. You, you know, yeah. you, and nobody realizes that, that they may feel that they're separated by divisions within society, but in reality, there are others taking the same path as we are taking. So that was yeah. brilliant that I you agree. got the opportunity. Yeah. And I think those are things that we need to talk more about as a society, because we I should agree. never have to feel like we're completely alone in this because of whatever, name the, name the reason. Yeah, yeah, I agree. 100%. Conversation, you know, that every every domestic violence case that I ever went to, yeah. I always left with this, communication is the key to success. Absolutely. Communication will save your marriage, save your relationship, 
communication mm-hmm. is a start. Communication will open the door. Communication yeah. and yeah. you know the other thing, and, and this is your platform at the moment, but I, I like to throw in there that a lot of times we just we don't realize it, but we just have to ask. Yeah, people are absolutely. afraid to ask. Yeah. It's true. And they don't, and sometimes when they ask, uh, they don't know what to do when they get the answer (laughs) (laughs) that they either don't want or, yeah. And so I, I do think communication is everything, healthy communication, of course, and and learning how to communicate in a way that is um, positive and encouraging and supportive, not, not without conflict, right? Healthy conflict is important, but having the ability to communicate in a way that is not violent or um, unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's touch base real quick. If you don't mind, I know that in the information that uh, was provided to me, uh, you talk about uh, sexual violence. Uh, how did that yeah. affect your life? Well, um, you know, I think that is something that actually is very common um, with women and some men um, throughout so often. And it's something we a lot of times don't talk about. Uh, the first time that I was raped, um, it was by my boyfriend at the time. And it was clear rape, but I, I blamed myself. It was you know, I, I shouldn't have done that, or I shouldn't have said this and whatever the case may be. And then there were about three other times throughout college and, um, in my early adult life that I was raped, but, but again, blamed myself. I I was drunk. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said this or whatever the case may be. And so I actually, blamed myself so much that I didn't even realize that it was rape um, until I was in this work uh, doing what I, I was, I was in a presentation with a trauma therapist. We were both presenting and it was her turn. And she said something and I thought, oh my gosh, that was rape. And what was so fascinating to me was that we often say to um, individuals, you know, most sex trafficked individuals don't even see themselves as trafficked. They don't self-identify. And people think, well, how is that even possible? And it is because you make those mental excuses in your head. That was your fault. You were drunk, whatever it may be, or you said, okay, to whatever. And what we have to recognize is rape is rape is rape and what that looks like and really educating our youth about what that looks like as well. So it, it really affected me very negatively. Um, but it, it was a little different because I didn't even see it as what it was. Unfortunately that in society today, in a lot of environments, not just in the United States, but all across the world, you know, yeah. that uh, is an unfortunate fact. Uh, as it a fa- as a man, as a father of daughters, mm-hmm. as a husband, mm-hmm. as a brother, as a son, and as a friend uh, of of many women, they have realistically no means no, and it's not acceptable right. in any circumstance. Whether your boyfriend, girlfriend, 
a girlfriend, girlfriend, boyfriend, boyfriend, whatever stature in life that you are, if you say no, it's not acceptable. And if it takes place, it is not your fault. That comes from a cop too. So that's, that's an authority figure. Yeah. Retired cop. I need. I love. Should emphasize that. I love that. <laughs> well, but, and it is so true. It's <clears throat> not your fault. Yeah. Yeah, it's never your fault. Hard to realize. Yeah. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't matter if you're. You, even if you go get drunk, that's not your fault. Absolutely not your fault. Right. You. That right. should not say that. Well, if I go get drunk, this is what's going to happen, and that's okay. It doesn't work that right. way. Kind of a no. situation. So, yeah. First and foremost, no. Um, you mentioned uh, trafficking. So how did you how did mm-hmm. you get involved in uh, human trafficking? I mean, this first let's uh, let me can I preface it with this? Uh, sorry, my mind's going in like no, oh, you're good. Different you're directions. good. So <laughs> you you mentioned human trafficking. So let's define what human trafficking is. I understand it, but right. let's define for our audience what human trafficking is. Absolutely, it is um, the buying and selling of a human being for the personal profit or gain of another through force fraud or coercion. That's that's the, the big definition. I think when we look at that and look at the buying and selling of a human being, the foundation of everything I, I teach wherever I am is you have an intrinsic value that cannot be changed. Because when you recognize someone's intrinsic value, you can't buy them and you cannot sell them. When you're buying and selling a human being, you are looking at them as a product, as a commodity. And of course, there are different forms of human trafficking. Two of the biggest that we see, um, sex trafficking and labor trafficking, um, buying and selling of a human being for sex, um, buying and selling of a human being for work. And so those are the two big forms of human trafficking that we, we talk about and educate on. What got you involved in human trafficking? How did you move into that position to be an advocate? Came in kicking and screaming, actually, I like to say. I had been doing a lot of work with women in the area of sexual and domestic violence, addiction, um, and was traveling, um, speaking, just having an amazing time working uh, with women. And one of my... uh, co-workers at the time said, hey, let's help sex trafficked victims. That was a quote. And I thought, sure, really having no idea what that meant. In my mind, it was the movie Taken. You know, you don't send your daughters to Europe by themselves. You're good. If Liam Neeson were their dad, might be a little bit easier for you because he can take down five guys in the kitchen. This was my mindset. Yeah, exactly. Just for the record. Yeah, me too. A special set of skills, right? This was my exactly. mindset. And um, that is not what trafficking certainly can happen that way, but that's not what it looks like. And when I researched what was going on in my community um, and in Nebraska here, we're actually a hotspot for trafficking. Oh, really? And when I realized, yeah, what was going on in my community and that no one was talking to the targets of trafficking, I, I knew I had to do something. So that's how we got started. I guess I kind of, that, that, yeah, I think it's a, it's a larger problem across the world than yeah. what people really realize. 
Um, yeah. So I'm glad that we're discussing this and bringing it out into the open yeah. a little bit so that we can understand some things such as who's at risk for trafficking. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, to your point, it's a $150 billion industry minimally. That, that was a statistic several years ago. So, I mean, we're talking a lot of money right there. But who is at risk? Um, our youth are huge targets. I always say anybody is at risk. We see trafficked individuals from infants to senior citizens. That can happen all through all ages. But really, um, youth anywhere between the ages of 12 and 19 is is a lot of the average age into entry into trafficking. Um, and there's a myth that it's only girls being trafficked. But Boys can be trafficked, sometimes up to 50%, the, you know, as much as girls. And so it really depends on each community, what you're seeing. But it is it is not about kidnapping. It's about relationship building. And I think that's the scariest part because what, um, you know, kidnapping, hey, just watch out for the white van. Don't get too close to strangers. If you, you know, I asked an eighth grader once, tell me what a predator looks like. And she was like, oh gosh, yeah. Predator is like that super old guy in a trench coat, like really old, like 30. I mean, this is what they think, right? <laughs> and so if that were the case, it would be so easy to watch for that. But the reality is, um, our kiddos are spending a whole lot of time on social media, and that's one of the number one places traffickers are luring the individuals they traffic. And so when they have access to the world, the world has access to them. Yeah, that's. I think that uh, social media is a wonderful aspect of life. It allows mm -hmm. us to stay in communication with each other in an instant, yeah. which is has its benefits, but it also has the negative aspect of that. And I think That's that right. uh, um, I have watched through, at least from the law enforcement perspective, obviously I'm retired, but I do stay in connection yeah, sure. uh, with some of my colleagues and so forth and watch the trends. And you know, I belong to some law enforcement groups that discuss it, but uh, social media is uh, yeah. kind of a pitfall within that area. I know that they're taking measures um, to help kind of prevent that, but you and I both know that unfortunately without making sure and monitoring your children um, yeah. without, you know, be reasonable. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't, how do I say this without making everybody mad? <laughs> you I, can I monitor no your children. <laughs> yeah. You have to yeah. monitor your children you in regard to. to social media mm -hmm. because uh, realistically they can slip through that at, at any right. point within any of their social media. Uh, right. Forgive me, but, you know, um, there are dirt bags out there that take opportunity yeah. and they take that opportunity to the next level. So that's yeah, I right. Think it, and, um, when you, when you got involved with, uh, trafficking, you developed, um, the, the set me, the set me free project, yeah, right? set that, me free project. in specific mm -hmm. with the trafficking and so forth. Um, what kind of trauma does that present? to an individual mm. that's been trafficked and uh, how difficult it is, is it for, to grab them out of that situation? That's a great question. You know, only one to 2% of trafficked individuals are recovered or rescued. That's a staggering low number, one to 2%. Too low. And so, yeah, that's why we as a mission 
uh, want to prevent it before it starts. Our goal is to stop trafficking before it starts. And um, the trauma that these individuals experience is layers upon layers upon layers of trauma. And it is truly a lifetime of recovery and restoration. And, you know, we see the trauma that domestic violence um, displays. We see the trauma that sexual violence displays. But so double that, I mean, add all of those layers on top of those betrayal, the, I mean, and it's just, it's extreme extreme trauma. And even in a short amount of time, there was a young gal who was trafficked here and um, she was only with her trafficker for three days before she was recovered. And that's a really short amount of time. When mom found her, went into the hospital to see her, she was so traumatized that mom didn't even recognize her. I mean, it, it can be very, very brutal traumatization, but so much of it is emotional and coercive. Well, and, you know, I think society, and when I say this, I'm not, when I, when I put it from this perspective, um, because I've seen it from both, I've seen it from that side. I've seen yes. it from the law enforcement yes. side. Right. You know, people watch TV and they see the pimp, quote unquote, mm-hmm. but they don't understand mm-hmm. that w- what happens to the individual that is that the pimp has control over, right? And, and it goes a lot deeper than just the pimp. Mm-hmm. You know what you see on TV. It it is sure does. It is a very intricate network of yeah. individuals that perpetuate yep. this opportunity to sell this product. Correct. It's, it's a big business. And I always say, um, you know, traffickers have big networks. We need to have bigger ones. Mm. Traffickers build amazing relationships. We need to build better ones. And I think those are the, the number one way to prevent human trafficking is building relationships and teaching people how to do that, teaching people how to be right. safe adults. And those are just such key things. And, um, and I, you know, TV has sensationalized this and, you know, we see all these stories, but it is happening in our own backyard, our neighbors are, you know, and, and I think that's the one thing that if I could get across to everybody, it's not those other people that are at risk. It's your kids your grandkids and it's in your home because of social media. Absolutely. 100%. Uh, when they had the, uh, the Super Bowl down here, luckily yeah. there was a, a, a task force that specifically dealt with trafficking that was yeah. down here and because of that. The Super Bowl came to town and, um, yeah. they immediately were activated and, and that, that task force showed up here in order That's to, awesome you know, to grab what they, who they could and, and to yeah. shut it down and, you know, right. take the perpetrators into custody. Um, I have to be careful because sometimes I'll go back to talking like a cop and, and that's I all right. It. I talk we, to a lot of cops, so I like we, it. <laughs> yeah. We have another, we have a few other choice words for them too. So yeah, exactly, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but uh, I try yeah. to keep it, I try to keep it a little clean on, on the show. <laughs> 
but I think you get my drift. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you've seen a lot. You've you've seen a lot. And it's hard, I think, to when you see that kind of evil, it, first of all, it's hard to comprehend. Um, but I think then it's hard to maintain that. You know, it, I always tell tell people calm. it's war the call. Yes, it's warm in the sand. When we have our heads in the sand, it's nice, it's calm, it's dark, it feels good. Yeah. But, you know, we do have to take it out and um, look around. And I think that that is the one thing. And again, thank, I mean, I know I said this last time we spoke a while ago, but thank you so much for your service because you truly are on the front lines and um, it is so critical. And to have, you know, Good people like you who were in law enforcement and who still are today in areas. I mean, that's just so critical. And well, I wish I could do more. I mean, I, there's colleagues of mine that actually there's some retired cops that actually created uh, a group, and I'm sure you're probably aware of them uh, across the country. There are several of them that uh, that specifically go after traffickers and and trying to recover mm -hmm. individuals from that perspective. Right. Um, right. I'm not physically able to do that or I'd be in the middle of that, but I get to do stuff like this yeah. and spread That's the right. word. Um, Everybody can play a part. Yep. So that your motivation, what was your exact, what was your motivation for setting, you know, getting the uh, set me free project in place to, to help other individuals with this? Yeah. You know, part of my motivation was uh, youth. I didn't really have a strong passion for trafficking. Um, per se, you know, to, and I think that what it was, was I saw that youth um, were really being taken advantage of um, all of those vulnerable populations. And, you know, I always say that vulnerability isn't a weakness necessarily. It can be, but sometimes it's just our age. You know, yeah. we all have a prefrontal cortex and that is our decision maker. And that is fully developed when we're, we'll quiz you here, Michael. When is that fully developed? Our decision maker. Probably 40, <laughs> maybe later. It's now, maybe it's like 25, 25 uh, to 30 for women. It's 50 for men. No, I'm kidding. It's 25 to 30 for I, all of I'm us. Still a, I'm still a kind of a kid at heart, but I won't tell yeah. anybody. So even just our age, can be a vulnerability. And that's not a weakness. That's just a part of who we are. Uh, but it could also be, hey, I just posted something really stupid on social media and somebody takes advantage of it. So I, I think in working with youth and and I had also in my work with women, I'd also spoken to youth on the topic of healthy relationships and just seeing some of the trauma that they experience, some of the pain and if I could just do anything to help prevent that, that that was what really inspired me. And that's a positive thing. Now, you're, the Set Me Free Project is a nonprofit organization. Correct. Yeah. And um, we are, I would say we're unique in, in the uh, mindset. You know, every piece of curriculum when we started out um, was very fear-based. And, you know, whatever you do, don't do this or all those things. And we don't want to say anything lighthearted about trafficking because it's a horrible subject, which is true. Mm -hmm. But what I noticed was none of the curriculum was written for youth. 
And none of the curriculum was written in a way that, and, and at this time that I found, that was palatable. And so I wrote a curriculum specifically for youth that was engaging, that helped them with critical thinking skills, that was fun despite the topic. And I always say, we take our topic very seriously. We don't take ourselves very seriously. And so a lot of humor in that. And that's how we started. We started with a middle school and a high school curriculum. And then we had a parent curriculum. Um, and then we expanded to educator. And now um, we have a curriculum from kindergarten through 12th grade for youth, college age students, and then um, adults of all kinds, industry, you know, all different industries, professions, mm -hmm. and just really that education piece, because if we can truly prevent it from happening, think of all of those costs of restoration and trauma and mental illness that we mm -hmm. could save from really keeping our kiddos safe and protected and in a frame of mind that is, yeah, I'm pretty awesome. I have incredible value and that makes me special. So, yeah. It's a very, that's a brilliant opportunity for, for us as individuals, human beings to be able to uh, mm. show our children who are gifts to us. Yes. How to uh, value themselves and to recognize that and to move them forward in a very positive way. Yes. So kudos. Thank yeah, you for that. absolutely. And um, now we get our curriculum in the hands of counselors, teachers, wherever, and just train them to really present this curriculum in a way that can benefit kiddos. So we can take it anywhere. That's a great thing. That's an absolutely great thing. I know that you, um, I, we'll talk about that in a second. Do you have any, yeah. um, do you have any tips or some, uh, things that parents, mm -hmm. uh, first, can we break this up into two quick little things? Sure. As a parent, what kind of signs should we watch for for them? Because sure. we were talking already about monitoring our kids um, yeah. and our grandkids. Uh, what mm -hmm. what signs should, as a parent or a grandparent or a guardian need to look for to make sure that their child is not getting close to this? Yeah. Whoops, so trafficking. One, one, one second. Oh, wrong yep. button. <laughs> okay, take Dang two. old on research. <laughs> so um, trafficking is a grooming process. And so um, traffickers spend time grooming the individuals they traffic. Could be for a very long period of time, could be a year or more. And we see that quite a bit. And so some of the things to watch for are now your kiddo's got somebody in their life maybe you don't know a whole lot about, maybe you don't even know who they are, but they're spending time with somebody. Maybe they're older. Um, this could be their new romantic partner. This could be a friend. And then they get um, gifts that you wouldn't typically be able to afford, or you see them with money during the grooming process, things they might want and are being used to entice them to, Hey, you know, this is great stuff. Um, looking for things like, okay, this is their typical as a teenager. Now they're not doing this typical, whether it be the way they look, 
the way they talk, um, their grades, um, going to school regularly, whatever their typical is, now it's not so typical. And looking for those kind of changes. Uh, sometimes it could be falling asleep in class. We know that, you know, could be a kid that's gaming and up all night, but um, are they falling asleep at, in class because they're being sold? Uh, I think one of the big misconceptions is that if your kiddo is being trafficked, they're not in your home anymore, or they've been taken and they've been moved. But we had young girl here, high school. She was going to school every day, getting straight A's. And uh, she would come home, do her afternoon job. She would do her homework and she was getting pimped out or sold by her quote unquote boyfriend every night and living with mom and dad, mom and dad, none the wiser. So um, trafficking can happen literally right under our noses and we need to make sure that we're looking for some of those signs, but also who is following them on social media? You know, social media is not a bad thing, but we have to help them safely navigate it. And so making sure that you're helping them while they're under your roof, learn how to safely navigate social media, look at who's following them, because sometimes there'll be uh, all these people following me. I don't even know who they are. So having those conversations. So how do you know this person? Tell me the story about how you met this person. And then if they don't know them, I mean, really know them, then, you know, let's talk about maybe it's not a good idea to have someone follow you that you don't know because of, you know, what, what you're posting or whatever the case may be. But those are some of the biggest signs that change from typical to atypical, an older present, a presence of an older um, boyfriend, girlfriend, friend, um, extra money, cash, maybe things like that. And a lot of times it's a kiddo, um, it looks like a runaway situation, so to speak. And the kiddo runs for a while and then is home, leaves for a while and then is home. And so it could look like a number of different things like that. But those are some of the big signs to watch out for. Those are a brilliant list. Um, next question that I, I think that we, we should be able to educate those individuals listening and hopefully uh, get, help them to recognize what yeah. may take place or what's going to take place. What do you recognize? What kind of tips do you would you give a, a, a kid, a child? Uh, and mm -hmm. when I say child, that could be anyone under the yeah. anyone under the age of 18 years old right. but i also think it also applies to other individuals that may be 18 to 25 or, or, or right. more because they're in college so do you have yeah. any tips for them to kind of start watching how somebody might approach them yeah. to be groomed absolutely yeah um a, again social media is probably the number one way that it's happening and that seems so benign because this is a person following me they may not make contact for quite a while and when they do it may just be oh cool they liked my they liked my post and maybe they like it again or they make a comment and now this is somebody who is starting to connect with me um so you're targeted this is kind of the grooming process and then they start to build your trust. Maybe it's as simple as, oh gosh, you like chocolate cake, so do I. I love chocolate cake. Oh, you've always wanted to go 
Yeah, that's where I would love to vacation and just start building a connection, building that trust. And then it's filling a need. Now, that need could be, I really want to feel loved. That need could be, hey, I'm starving. I want McDonald's. Whatever that need is, now I am available to fill that need. And if it's love, for example, gosh, you mean everything to me. You're so beautiful. You're so handsome. I love spending time with you. And then it is isolating. Now that isolation can look like a number of different things that can look like, Hey, your friends, you remember your friends that were around all the time. They're not around anymore because I am the only one who cares about you. I'm the only one who loves you. Your friends don't care about you anymore. Your parents, your parents are so controlling. I would never treat you like that. And that isolation start moving friends and family out of the way. And then all of a sudden they sexualize you as a product. Now, um, that could be a, a number of different things, but starting to do that sexualization so that there's desensitization through that. Sometimes that's done through, hey, I want you to dance at this club, or let's take these pictures and post them, or whatever it is, and then I'm going to maintain control. Now, that means now I have had control of you. You may not have even noticed it, but now I keep it because I have, if I do those first three really well, that feel good, um, building trust, filling a need after I target you, then those last three things are going to be much, much easier for me to hold on to that. Now that grooming process take, can take a long time. And I think that's the hardest things for kiddos to really grab a hold of, be in a grooming process for over a year and recognizing then what is a trustworthy person. And that's one of the things we talk about. It's really not about stranger danger. And a lot of times we try and teach kids that roles are really trustworthy. So all teachers are trustworthy. All parents are trustworthy. All pastors are trustworthy. All law enforcement is trustworthy. And the reality is we know that, unfortunately, we have seen the headlines. All teachers are not trustworthy. All coaches are not trustworthy. So it can't be about different roles. It has to be about individuals. So who is a trustworthy person? And one of the things we talk to kids about is there's always four things that really separate a trustworthy person from a non-trustworthy person at some point. And a trustworthy person is someone who will never ask you to do something illegal. A trustworthy person is someone who will never ask you to go against your moral compass. A trustworthy person is someone who will never ask you to keep a secret from your parents or guardians. And a trustworthy person always wants the best for you. And those are ways that we can really determine, is this person in my life somebody I should trust or not? Outstanding tips. I um, hope that everybody can take the time to write those down, to recognize them, to take them in, and to share them yeah. with their friends as well. Because, um, you know, that way you stay connected. You, know, you create a community around you so that you can right. be more protected in, in these type of situations. So, you know, thank you for sharing yeah. those. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> uh, it's, 
it's interesting. We we mentioned this earlier. We were talking about it, and I took a quick note. Uh, we, you had talked about showing value and worth. Um, our tr- in, in tr- let me try it in English. <laughs> our intrinsic uh, yes. value within ourselves. Yeah. Uh, how yeah. can we uh, show our kids or those around us uh, their their value? How can we yeah. do that? Well, first we need to tell them. Um, we need to tell them that they have incredible value and then we need to show them. Um, one of the things I always tell parents is this was the best advice I ever received. As a parent, when your kids walk in the room, your eyes should light up like you have never seen anything so amazing. That when they are in your presence, your time is spent with them. And that's how we show value with anything. We, you know, I think about our phones. We have our phones on our person at all time. And we know that those have value to us because for heaven's sake, we're never away from them. And not that you have to be with your kids 110% of the time, but it's that showing them that you are priority to me right now. That if I'm having dinner with you, we're going to talk and look at each other. Um, My mom always tells this was pre-phones, uh, but my my brother, who was young at the time, said, Mom, I want to talk to you. And she was doing something. And she said, OK, OK. And he said, no, Mom, I really want to talk to you. And she said, I'm listening. And he grabbed her face and turned it to him. And he said, no, really, I need you to listen to me. And I think sometimes as parents, we forget that we're so busy. I mean, we're just busy human beings. And we need to stop and make sure our kids know that they are a priority. And, and that is, I, I had a little boy, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, one of the boys we were educating, he was um, listening to our presentation. I think it was in, in middle school. And at the end of our presentation, he approached our educator and said, no one has ever told me I have value. I have never heard that in my life. And so as they began to talk, it turned out that he was in an extremely abusive home. He was being abused sexually um, by a family member. And so, of course, we had to report it. And we walked him through that. Now, usually we never know what happens after that because we report it it's confidential we move back and uh this kiddo emailed us and said hey just wanted to let you know they did take me from my home and that was scary but i am safe for the first Mm. time in my life and that's because of you thank you and then he said then he called he emailed us a month later and said hey it's my birthday and I'm having a birthday because of you. And that's that's why we do what we do. Well done. Outstanding. Well done. I appreciate <laughs> that. I, taking individuals away from those situations, yeah. this sounds very strange, but uh, I enjoy doing that. It, yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it made me feel good every time I was able to take an individual yeah. out of that situation and place them in a more positive environment for themselves. Yep. And tell me that I was doing my job and um, I yeah. enjoyed that part of my job. It, it kind of, that's awesome. 
It's a little it's selfish hard. Right there, but it's hard. Yeah, I love it's it. It's hard. It's hard for the kids. It's hard yeah. for, but um, what a what a great thing for kiddos when they are in a safe place for the first Absolutely. time. Absolutely. So yeah, well yeah. done. Yeah. Um, let's talk about everything you have to offer because we yeah. didn't get the opportunity to talk about your speaking, your consulting. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm so involved in this other conversation. It's okay. You've got a podcast, you've got a couple of books out, and you've got a consulting service. So yeah. can uh, let's share that with the world. Tell me about all yeah, of that. Yeah, absolutely. And how, and how to so, get a hold of you, please. Absolutely. So I do love um, to speak. I speak on a lot of topics all over. Um, of course, human trafficking and healthy relationships. But I also speak on resilience and trauma and um even in the corporate world, how we can take our trauma and turn that into a triumphant situation. And so all of those things. Um, and I love to train um, people, women's events, whoever, if you, if you let me talk to you, I will do that. And um, I do love consulting um, businesses on some of the, the, those human resource type things that trauma and moving in a, a positive direction as a leader. Um, so you can find me on that, that front at stephanieolson.com. Um, and I love to connect with people. Please do not hesitate. That's where you can also find my podcast, um, resilience in life and leadership and my books. So stephanieolson.com. And then Definitely check us out at setmefreeproject.net. Um, anything human trafficking, social media, and healthy relationships. But we would love to give you the opportunity to get our curriculum in your hands, in your schools, in your communities. And we also do a lot of educational webinars. And so we're happy to train parents and community members and educators, whoever. Again, whoever will listen to me talk. I will talk to. <laughs> this works. It's not, it's not like an open door, open door yes. opportunity. Um, Absolutely. Stephanie, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you sharing Great. the wisdom and your experience and your journey and getting where you have come from and where you are at now. I think that you're doing an amazing job in helping people thank move you. their lives forward in a very positive way. So thank you for being part of this community and for being a human being right here with us. Thank you. Um, this is one more thing before you go. So before we go, do you have any words of wisdom that we haven't shared maybe? Well, I just want to thank you for what you're doing. I love that you're shining a light on all these um, amazing things that are so important for people to know. And, um, and, any of us um, can be caught in a situation that does not feel right. And so if you ever need help, reach out until you get the help you need. Brilliant words of wisdom. Thank you very much. Again, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for sharing you. everything with us. And uh, I hope that we can have another conversation down the road. Let's do it. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go. Check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform.